The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, welcome everyone. Is anyone new here tonight? Lots of new people. Well, welcome. So, generally on uh, Thursday night, um, the regular teacher is a woman named Andrea Fellow. And Andrea is off at Spirit Rock Meditation Center teaching a concentration retreat with three or four other teachers. So she asked me, or Gil asked me, to fill in for her tonight. So I'm happy to be here. And um, I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, and uh, several things came to mind uh, over the course of the day. And I couldn't quite decide which I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to try to incorporate it all into one, one package. And bear with me if I don't do very well. <laughs> I'll try. So um, I guess the first thing that I want to do is uh, just ask a question, pose a question, which I can pose to myself which I often pose to myself. Um, And that is, um, is meditation, is meditation an easy thing to do? Is Is there much to do in order to learn how to meditate? What do you think? Is there much to it? And is there... a reason to try to do this. So that's the response that I generally give myself when I ask that question. (laughs) And uh, because in our personal experience, we oftentimes discover that when we sit down to meditate or that when we try to meditate, Um, the experience that we actually have is not the experience that we anticipated having, nor is it the experience that we necessarily wanted to happen. So frequently we discover that the mind is not uh, very malleable and that it's not very cooperative. So oftentimes, especially here in the West, we begin to meditate by getting instructions on how to cultivate and develop concentration, how to settle the mind down. And so these instructions are really um, useful, and uh, they're, you know, uh, roadmaps. But in our experience, in our experience, when we try to follow, when we try to focus on the breath, for instance, or when we try to focus on the phrases of loving-kindness, the mind goes here and goes there. It's scattered. We're told just ignore that or just notice that the mind has drifted and come back to the object. So the instruction, or one of the instructions that we get, 
is to um, uh, simply notice the mind has wandered, return to the object. The mind wanders, we notice that the mind has wandered, we return to the object. And it's kind of like repeat, just do this over and over and over again. Um, So that's a legitimate instruction. That is a legitimate instruction, but it's not a very easy instruction because it's not very rewarding. And um, uh, the mind, especially, I I won't say especially the Western mind, I'll say the mind generally wants to be rewarded. So if it does something, it wants a reward for it. And when we're simply going back, forcing the mind back, or directing the mind back to the object, it's not very immediately rewarding. So we don't really see what the point is. It's sort of boring. The breath is kind of boring. And then we're told, oh, the breath is beautiful. Investigate the beautiful breath. And and you wonder for years, is it me? (laughs) The breath doesn't seem that interesting or beautiful to me. I can't figure this out. So, has anyone had an experience like that? <laughs> yeah. So, so, there's another way to approach this, which is, um, uh, which is simply another way. It's not the way or it's not a magic pill, but it's another way to approach this. And um, it's through looking at um, causality. So when we investigate, when we, when we watch the mind do what it's doing, we can struggle with it and try to force it back, or we can try not to struggle with it and just to bring it back. Or we can get interested in the fact that the mind is doing what it's doing. So we can begin to actually investigate it. So what I want to point to here are the what's called the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism. And if I, I'm not very good at remembering these lists, so I'm going to try to f- find these factors. I can do some of them, but I want to try to give them to you so that it makes sense what I'm about to say here. These factors begin with mindfulness or or the quality of sati. And um, then the list... uh, It's the first in the list, and it's followed by interest in investigation, uh, dhamma-vichara, and then energy. So once we begin to look at something, we get energy from doing so. And this is followed by uh, a quality called piti, which is joy and rapture. And then this is followed by relaxation and tranquility, which gives rise to concentration, and concentration, or samadhi, gives rise to equanimity, or really profound, deep uh, peace, unification. 
So um, what I discovered, I, I was reading an academic paper here, which is what, what sort of spurred me on to try to follow this line of, of reasoning here. And that um, it's put forth that when we, uh, when we do something over and over again, what we're doing is we're obviously we're creating a habit, a mental habit. And this habit, whatever the habit might be, is reinforced by constant rep- repetition. So in the case of the meditation subject that I just pointed to, which in this case was the breath, by going over, going back over and over and over, repeating just like the mind wanders, I go back, the mind wanders, I go back, the mind wanders, I go back. Um, and if this isn't fulfilling for us, then what we're doing is we're creating a habit that's not allowing us to see what's really going on. Because there's a possibility and the great likelihood that uh, many of us, myself included, uh, when we sit down, we really want something to happen. We want a nice experience to happen. And so we meditate with this idea that we're going to get something for it, decide, uh, from, get something from it, excuse me. So we meditate with this quality of um, uh, wanting, wanting, craving. And, and there's a tendency to... Um, reinforce this habit through through the distortion of not being able to see what we're really engaged in because we're just doing the same thing rote over and over and over again. So when we apply these factors of awakening, these seven factors of awakening to our actual experience, to our actual direct and practical experience, we can begin to see more deeply into the truth of our present moment experience. So we can begin to uh, see what's actually at play. Do we want, are we wanting something? Are we being frustrated and um, blocked by getting what we want? Do we have aversion and... Um, ill will towards the experience that we're actually having. You see, we, we, we won't see any of that if we just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Now, I don't want to give you or leave you with, the, either give or leave you with the impression that by simply returning the mind to the object, if you can do this with equanimity, this is a perfectly legitimate way of cultivating deeper meditation, deeper mindfulness. But for many people, you can't really do that. And so the application of these factors of enlightenment uh, will allow you to see at a much deeper level what's actually going on. So, you know, in the case of wanting or clinging, this is how we create suffering in our lives. 
And when we look at our situation, whether it's that we want, you know, chocolate cake for dessert and we get apple pie. And so we, we're, we're dealing with the frustration or whether we want a concentrated mind that's stable and unified and we get a mind that's wandering around all over the place. This is, this is really important to notice because it's the resistance to the truth of what's actually happening that distorts our ability to see it clearly and therefore blocks any... I don't... Um, it, it obscures our chances to transform our experience. So we can sit down and meditate and do this over and over and over again without knowing that what we're doing is... Uh, what we're bringing to the meditation is greed, this quality of wanting and clinging. So until we can notice that and discover that for ourselves, um, we're sort of trapped by it. Now, so let's, let's say that we have, um, we've decided to explore our experience through looking at the, the, um, these seven factors of awakening. One way that we might do that is that we might look at um, the triggering event. What, what, what's triggering you? So you're trying to, to stay with the breath, the mind wanders, you start daydreaming, or you start replaying an argument you had with someone earlier in the day or you're remembering some old hurt or you're imagining some future XYZ, you fill in the blank. So, so that's the triggering event that you might begin to notice. And then there's the, the learned behavioral response that comes from that, you see? And it's really important for us to begin to see what that response is, what that behavior is. So we can, again, look at it in our meditation, or we can look at it in our exchanges and relationships uh, that we have in our day-to-day experience, whether we're in the queue at the grocery store or... um, in deep meditation. It makes no difference because what we're discovering here is what's really going on. And this is the only way that we can awaken. This is the only way that we have a chance of, of sort of breaking through our habits of behavior, our mental states. And, and so when we look at this, what is the what is the trigger? What is the behavior? And then look, you can look and see what is the reward that you get from that behavior. You see? This is, this is, a, this is a little bit heady, but this is certainly a, a very uh, useful way to look at your meditation because if you're having a meditation experience that's not really fulfilling, quote-unquote, 
it's really easy to just throw up your hands and say, what the hell is this all about? Why am I wasting my time? You see? So <clears throat> if, you, if you actually look and see in this very sort of pragmatic and practical way what's going on, what kind of behavior is being triggered, and what is the reward that I get from that behavior. If you just remember those three things, this will really serve you well. So this can also serve you well in your life. Um, There's actually a psychological um, term for this, and it's called, um, what's on the tip of my tongue? Uh, Maybe I'll remember it later, but it's basically um, learned behavior. Is, is what it is. It's, uh, uh, and so uh, we're, we're getting a reward for a behavior that we're doing over and over again, even if it's a, a reward we don't want. It's, it's, we, this is what's happening. So the idea here is that you can actually um, take this natural learning process, the way that we naturally learn. We want to be rewarded for s- something we do. Right? Uh, we do something and we, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, we, we want to be rewarded. That's, that, it's, it's really that simple. So if we sit down to meditate um, and, and we look for ways that we can experience some sort of a, a reward from the meditation rather than some sort of a frustration from the meditation, then there may be some way for things to settle down for us so that the meditation can unfold in a more natural and um, uh, uh, an, an easier and more natural way. So, um, <clears throat> another thing that's really important to say that I want to mention here is that uh, when we cultivate this quality of mindfulness, this quality allows us to see things as they're arising, as they truly are. That's, that's what it actually means. But um, it also uh, uh, helps us to, to see, as I just mentioned earlier, it helps us to see and let go of desire and and qualities of mind that, that are tinged with craving and attachment that cause us to suffer. So in this case, cultivating real mindfulness or mindfulness meditation is giving us the ability to not just see and experience a sensation or a sound or... Um, a thought as it arises in our experience, but to actually see more deeply into what's our intention and our motivations and what's underneath the experience that we're actually having. So sometimes it unfolds in a, in a, a really easy and natural way, and, and sometimes... I've discovered that no matter what I do, I'm just completely at a loss. I'm just completely frustrated. And, and 
sooner or later, even though I've meditated for many years, and as Maureen said, I was a monk for a while, um, I still can find myself uh, being critical, self-critical, judgmental, um, impatient, irritable with my experience, resistant to my experience, and all of those things. So something that I discovered along the way is that mindfulness in and of itself does not necessarily give rise to this quality of an open heart or compassion. It doesn't necessarily make us kinder. It simply reveals what our experience actually is, what we're actually experiencing. So what we can do is we can bring compassion into the picture. We can bring kindness into the picture, and we can learn how to be kind, and we can learn how to be compassionate. This is not something that um, just naturally and spontaneously arises as a habit. It naturally and spontaneously arises, but because we're not mindful enough, we don't actually notice when we are feeling compassion, when we're receiving compassion, or when we're giving compassion. So this is a skill that we can learn to cultivate. This is really important because I meditated for years and I thought, well, I know what compassion is. You know, I know, I think I know what compassion is. And, um, but the reality is that when you turn mindfulness towards compassion, you know, when you, when you recognize that you are being compassionate or that you are experiencing compassion or that you are withholding compassion, see, it's a completely different experience. And that's how you learn this beautiful, beautiful quality. And this quality of kindness changes the playing field completely. Whether you're in meditation or you're at work or you're in the queue at the grocery store. It changes everything. Because once compassion is awakened, your brain chemistry actually begins to change. It's the same thing. They can measure what happens to what happens in our brains when we're struggling with trying to, when they're doing uh, uh, neural research with with uh, meditators and they're studying the effects of mindfulness, for instance, uh, when you're when you're struggling and you're going, you're you're instructed to follow the breath, and then you're just struggling to follow the breath, follow the breath, follow the breath. What happens is there's a section in the brain that seems to um, to be activated when there's a, a lot of self-referencing and, and a, a lot of what we would call in Buddhism selfing. And this can be measured scientifically. So then they would ask a, a second group uh, to... Uh, so the first group would be newer meditators. 
And the second group would be more experienced meditators who could actually stay with the breath for, for a little bit of a while. And then in the third group, um, uh, in the third group, it would be experienced meditators instructed to follow the breath, but also to apply interest and curiosity to their experience. So again, this is like using the factors of awakening, the seven factors of awakening, or would be the second factor. And in each of these studies, the section of the brain that sort of gets activated when there's a sense of separation or a sense of self at play is much higher in the first group, sort of flatlined in the second group, and this counter quality is highly developed in the third group. In the same way, they can measure the effects of compassion. So when you, when you apply this quality of kindness to your meditation, um, it really doesn't matter what is coming up. If you are like being completely self-critical or judgmental or you're really angry or you're really feeling, you know, locked in desire and wants or you're feeling jealousy or you're feeling bliss or you're, whatever you're feeling, you see. But especially if it's, in a, if it's difficult, if you can meet it with compassion, if you can accept it with compassion, if you can, if you can see the suffering that's inherent in, in your experience and, and why you're suffering, you see, then the heart has an opportunity to open. And, and you don't have to really do anything. You, all you have to do is notice. And then if you begin to cultivate this kind response, this compassionate response, that in itself begins to change everything. And it's not like you become wishy-washy or a tree hugger or anything like that. It's that you become really whole. So in Buddhism, they say the wings of awakening are wisdom and compassion. And so often we practice without, we practice with a real emphasis on mindfulness, the way that I started this talk. And, and mindfulness is important because it's the backbone of everything. If we can't see what's happening, Clearly, there's no chance for change. So if we can't see that we're suffering from what we're doing, we're just going to suffer. That's all there is to it. So we, we develop mindfulness to see clearly what's going on. And if what we see is suffering, then through opening the heart, through being kind, through holding it with kindness and compassion, everything shifts. There's space around things. There's the possibility for real change to take place. You see? So, so compassion is something that I really want to, to um, encourage you all to consider 
in your meditation experience and in your life. So ways that you can do that or a way that you can do that is to, um, I was taught this not so very long ago and I've used it so I'm going to pass it on, is to notice what it actually feels like in your direct experience, the felt sense of what it's like when you give compassion to someone else. And then notice what it's like when you receive compassion from someone else, when you receive kindness. Now, it doesn't have to be like some big thing. It could just be a kind act, a consideration. You know, you might need some help and someone offers to let you use their car to load a chair in it, for instance, that your car isn't big enough for, something like that. And then you notice what that feels like, you see. And so the more you notice this, the more you will see that, boy, there are all these opportunities throughout the day where you can be kind, where you are kind and you're just not, you're not mindfulness and your mindfulness isn't focused on that or it isn't bright enough to notice that. So you begin to train yourself to notice that. You see, because if you notice what it's like when you give compassion and you notice what it's like when you receive compassion, you will get the immediate reward of that exercise, and you will build then a mental mind state or a mind state and a a mind habit that's wholesome and beneficial, not just to yourself, but to everybody that you come in touch with. And most importantly, it changes the relationship that you have with yourself. You see, we don't even realize how um, brutal we can be on ourselves and how much we, you know, we push ourselves. Um, So we can ask ourselves, what is it that keeps us from being kind to ourselves? Does does anyone want to... I, I, I can give you an example, and then I'd ask if anyone else has anything you might want to add. But uh, this is a very common one that people will sometimes report. I'm afraid that if I am kind to myself, or I, I you know, am compassionate towards myself, that um, I'll be perceived as being weak, and people will take advantage of me. That's one. Or another example would be, I'm afraid if I'm kind to myself, I've got so much to do and I'm in such a competitive environment that everything will fall apart around me and I'll be perceived as a slacker. So I simply cannot rest for a moment. I have to just keep grinding away. So that would be another example. I see a few looks of recognition. You see, and in a situation like that, you can say, what does it feel like when you act on that belief? 
what's the reward for acting on that belief? You see, there's a trigger and there's a behavior, and then there's a reward. So what is the reward for withholding compassion from, from yourself? And there are, you know, as many people as are in the room tonight, there could be that many different. Does anyone want to? Serenity of the mind. Serenity of the mind would be a... If you like yourself, you're serene. Oh, yes, yes. No, what I'm asking is uh, what would be um, uh, a reason that you might withhold kindness from yourself? Not if you like yourself. Not if you... No, no. Yeah. You're, that's right. Your conscious level is higher. Yeah. Okay. If you're serene, you don't have to worry about whether you're liked or not liked. Or, but if you're like yourself, then you're, you're happy and well-adjusted. That's the voice of wisdom. For, for those of us who might not be that wise yet, are, does anybody else have anything that you might want to add to that? So the reason that I cannot be compassionate to myself is because I have... Would you turn that uh, up a little because I can't hear her? I have a high Mm self-expectation. And I expect myself to do, you know, a lot of things. And um, if I can't do it, don't do well, I just keep on pushing myself. Yes. Yeah. So um, that's a very... That's a very common response that people have. They, we just think that we have to be superman or superwoman or whatever, and there's no alternative. And, and if you, I would suggest that for those of us who experience that, which is a, thank you for sharing, by the way, that we, we can examine what we feel like when that's our experience, when that's what we think, when that's our habit of thought. And then if we just try in baby steps, it doesn't have to be anything big, just baby steps, little things, little ways that we can begin to start treating ourselves with more consideration. You see? Because sometimes we think, oh, we've got a compassion is this great big thing, and the Dalai Lama talks about compassion, and I'm certainly not like the Dalai Lama. But we can be kind to ourselves in little ways. We really can. We can take a nap sometimes, or you know, we can have a second cup of coffee without feeling guilty. Or we can begin in little ways to do things which are are kind. Arthur. So your your first example, I think, was if you're compassionate to yourself, other people will think you're weak. And well, that was I, just an example, right? But I I would add to that that I I would think I might think I was weak if I were compassionate with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, not just other people. And then another example is um, 
um, you may not, I may not feel worthy of being compassionate to myself. That's an interesting thing, huh? Isn't that an interesting discovery? And so this is a perfect um, example, thank you, Arthur, of why looking at these things are important, because we can begin to discover what kind of habits of mind we're actually working with that we're not aware of. You see, we might have been looking at, we might have been trying to apply mindfulness, 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 and missing something as obvious as, I just don't think I'm worthy of kindness. You see? By the way, you are worthy of kindness. (laughs) We're all worthy of kindness. So, yes, Another situation that comes to mind is when I'm not kind to myself or if I, if I think I could have done things differently, then I can keep an illusion of control. So then some, you what? I'm sorry, I didn't I hear. can keep an illusion of control. An illusion of it control. It is if I blame it on me instead of just accepting that there are things that I cannot control around me. If I blame it on me, then I can keep the illusion of control. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that you said the illusion of control, too. Because one of the things that we discover when we begin to practice is that sooner or later we bump into the scary possibility that we really do not have control. We think we have control. We think we know what we're going to do when we walk out the door and when we get up to go to work tomorrow or school or whatever we're going to do tomorrow. We think we know what we're going to do. (laughs) But the truth is, we don't have a clue. The people who we were when we entered this room are gone. We are not those people any longer. And the people we will be when we leave here, we're not that person yet. So in each moment, there's a kind of loss that we experience. This loss is put, puts us in contact or in... Um, it, it puts us in the terrain of understanding the territory of understanding directly this idea of impermanence, the arising and passing away of, of everything that's part of the phenomenal world. You see, And that includes our sense of control, which is completely illusory. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't, that we don't plan and we don't organize our lives according to what's practical and so on and so forth. But the truth is that there's no control. We do the best that we can and then we sort of give up to the mystery as it's unfolding. There's somebody who had something to say over here. Um, Sometimes I don't uh, give compassion like if I'm experiencing something unpleasant in meditation, like 
my heart beating really fast. Uh-huh. Um, I can't just like apply compassion because it's forced. Of course. I appreciate that. And I don't want to interrupt you or cut you off, so finish what you're going to say. Um, yeah, I guess I just feel sometimes like it becomes this project to like be, um, well, it's like becoming intimate with it is a mystery to me. Like, I don't really know how to just like give it compassion. Like, maybe I just need to sit with it and let it be what it is. So, so thank you. Um, you're not, we're not necessarily trying to do compassion, to give compassion. We're simply trying to recognize what I'm pointing to is the recognition of experience and the inherent suffering in the experience that we might be having and suggesting that that gives rise to an opening of the heart into a compassionate response. So that's an important distinction, and I, I, I want to thank you for, for the comment, because um, there are many times where, where we might be so caught up in what our story is, whatever is happening, whether it's a beating heart or uh, a memory of an argument with someone, uh, we might be so caught up that we really can't feel kindly towards it. We really can't. But I've played with this, so I'm going to say in my experience, what we can do is recognize that we can't yet do that. You see? Or that we can't yet let go of the need to be perfect or the need to be in control. You see, this is part of our real experience. This is what we're really experiencing. And, and if we see that with mindfulness, we can see the inherent potential for suffering to arise. So we begin to see the first and second noble truths of the Buddha. That there is suffering and that there's a reason for suffering. And when that happens or in that kind of a process, sometimes compassion will hold the fact that we don't feel compassionate, we don't feel kindly. Sort of like if you try to do a forgiveness exercise and the person you're trying to forgive is somebody that you're really holding a grudge against. It's not so easy. But you can recognize, I'm not... I just am not at a place where I can forgive. And I forgive myself for being there. This is a compassionate response. This is an honest response. Every time we are dishonest with ourselves through a lack of mindfulness, our out-and-out dishonesty, but generally through a lack of not seeing clearly what's going on, we, we reinforce a certain kind of a mental habit. And, and that mental habit is one that will lead us to a place of, um, you know, dissatisfaction or out-and-out unpleasantness and suffering sooner or later. So a way that you can always test your experience is, you know, (laughs) 
does this depend on anything? Does this, does me getting this depend on certain things? Or can I feel this freely at any moment? If you can feel it freely at any moment, then you're pretty sure that you're in the territory of wholesomeness, either wholesome mindfulness or wholesome compassion. And so you might say, well, what's unwholesome mindfulness? Well, people will say you can learn to become a burglar or a robber or something, and you have to apply you know, a lot of attention, and that's a kind of mindfulness. But that's not what, what we're talking about. And um, in the case of compassion, um, I'm not suggesting that we struggle to try to feel compassionate. We just simply see what's happening, and it happens by itself. So if you think of compassion as the bearing witness, I mean, we could define it in many different ways, but bearing witness to the suffering of someone else or yourself, having the wish to alleviate that suffering. You know, you see someone that you care about being in distress or needing help, and you just have a natural wish to try to help. You know, it doesn't mean that if somebody, you know, is dying from a brain tumor, you can fix it, but you can bear witness to what your friend is going through or your loved one is going through. Or if you want chocolate for dinner and you get, or for dessert and you get apple pie, you see, it's, it's even in small ways like that, you can begin to see, you can begin to see the effects of applying compassion or learning how to apply compassion. And you can begin to see that, that what the role of mindfulness is in all of this. Is this, does this make sense? Is it clear? Yes. Does someone have the mic? I'm not sure why, but I'm getting a feeling of amusement from, from this. You're what? Amusement. I'm, I'm feeling amusement with the idea of compassion. Mm. Because I know in my day-to-day... Um, Compassion is a big part, and I will be with people who, um, I recognize that we all benefit or benefit from compassion, Mm -hmm. and there are times when it's spontaneous, the situation, whether you like the person or not, that you're in a relationship with, compassion can just flow. And it's amusing what you don't like the person, but you have compassion, mm-hmm. and that's amusing. Mm. It's like a sense of humor. And other times, I want to feel compassion, but tired or whatever. So I will at least put on the show, like an act of it, trying to cultivate it because I feel a person deserves that or needs that. Mm-hmm including myself. And it's not the same. It's not perfect. And I find myself being amused at that. That you're not perfect. 
uh, yeah, amuse that, recognizing, ah, I'm doing the best I can, and maybe it's not that's, cooking. That's and I'm, beautifully compassionate. I feel like a, uh, it's sort of, I'm getting that image of the laughing Buddha, if there is such a thing, that it's huh. just, oh well. Yeah. But anyway. That's, really, that's lovely. It's, that's, that is an example of a, a small way that we can begin to recognize and cultivate this quality in our lives, in our meditations and in our lives. And it's really, um, a lot of people say that they, they can't feel it so easily for themselves, but they can feel it for other people, and that's fine. Um, if you can't feel kind, kindly towards yourself, then if you can feel it towards other people, um, go ahead and try to begin to cultivate this quality of compassion in your life through being, um, through feeling it for other people, through being kind to other people. Um, there's a, a, a program uh, that's run over at Stanford where they're working with uh, uh, vets who have come back from uh, Afghanistan or Iraq are, and, and they're suffering from post-traumatic stress uh, uh, and this is something that comes up a lot I can't feel I can't feel this kindness for myself I can feel it for other people and so what they're doing is they're actually getting people to begin to practice what compassion feels like and what it feels like when they give it and then to see if they can recognize at a certain point what it's like to give it or to to receive it and then following from that they begin to work with people on how to um, give Kindness and compassion to yourself. It's it's something worthy of our attention, believe me. And um, if you can imagine for a moment what the world would be like if people learned the skill of being kind um, to themselves and to one another, uh, <laughs> we would we would have a much. Uh, it's all over, exactly. It's all over. So, um, so I hope this has been useful. This is my thoughts, and I, I know I rambled a bit because I tried to do too much, but I hope that it was in some way useful for you all. So, thank you.